Bandwidth for Change Log is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. I'm Charity Majors, and it is go time! It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Go Time. Today's episode is number 35, and our sponsors for today are TopPal and Compose. So today on the show, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. Carlicia Pinto is also here. Say hello, Carlicia. Hi, everyone. And Brian Kettleson. Hey. And today's special guest is a uh, co-founder of Honeycomb.io, formerly of Parson. I don't want to give away too many details. I'll, I'll let her kind of uh, introduce herself and a little bit of her Go background. Please welcome Charity Majors. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So you want to give everybody maybe a little bit of your background and kind of how you got into Go and sort of what you're using it for? Yeah, totally. Um, Started using Go at Parse. Um, We wrote the platform originally in Ruby and it just hit a wall. (laughs) And we wrote the entire thing over the course of two years in Golang. Turns out it's much harder to rewrite than to write, especially with mobile clients because you know everybody's shipped their app um they can't ship it to account for any of the changes that you're making on the api and there are so many implicit assumptions baked into that ruby code and you have to make every single one of them explicit when you're moving to go and then of course at honeycomb we just started with go right off the bat good choice that's a good point designing apis for mobile devices because you can't control Mm -hmm. when people upgrade and some people never update. Never update. And we had a million of them. So planned obsolescence is definitely a thing that we could do. And we didn't because it was, you just lose a significant fraction of our users. So now was this uh, performance bottlenecks you guys were running up against or, or? Yeah, I mean, well, that was the one that we hit first. I mean, we had a bunch of unicorns, you know, the Ruby web server. Ruby isn't exactly spread safe. And so you've got this fixed pool of unicorns and we had, you know, first one database, it was pretty okay. But by the time we had, you know, 25 replica sets behind it and MySQL and Cassandra, um, it just, there was always a database breaking and you would have all of the workers filling up with in-flight requests to whatever was timing out. It's impossible to provision enough to have enough in-flight workers to like time out gracefully, we tried everything to make it just like time out those connections. We got it to a place where it kind of mostly worked for Mongo, would never work for MySQL because of Active Record. Um, and it probably would have been as big of a rewrite to get out Active Record, make it thread safe, move to JRuby. Some gems were never going to be thread safe. And we just kind of table flipped. We're like, we need a threaded language. But that is such <laughs> a familiar story. I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> And I, yeah. I got to be honest, I don't miss unicorns. Uh, I really don't. You know, the unicorn thing, I, I am very much associated with unicorn in most people's minds. And they think it's because of fun and sparkles and magic. And it's because unicorn, because that web server was just the bane of my existence for years. Ugliness. 
So I, I think everybody's, is everybody using Puma now? I think that's the thing now. Using what? Everybody's using Go now. Nobody's using <laughs> yeah. Puma anymore. They're using Go. Yeah. The people who have not yet converted. You know, Ruby's fine. I mean, Unicorn is fine for what it does. If you're writing a web app, fine. It has a lot of helpers. It would have taken us longer to prototype and write parse the first time. No question about it. And you have to find slightly better engineers <laughs> also. Um, so I don't even know that I would have made a different decision than they did in the beginning. Because remember, when you're a startup, it is never clear that you're going to succeed. And Ruby helped us get going really fast in the day when Go didn't really exist outside Google, remember? We didn't have this pool of Go programmers. And what we're going to use, C++? <laughs> I mean, no. In 2011, that was, was like Java? No. <laughs> Ruby was a totally reasonable choice at the time. So now here's the question, because the parse rewrite was pretty early on. So I'm assuming everybody kind of grew the talent internally, that there was nobody on the team who was already familiar with Go. You were just kind of learning on the fly. Correct. But I will say that, you know, so we evaluated all of these statically typed languages. And we argued about it for like six months. And the reason that we chose Go, like it came down to C Sharp and Go, really. And the reason that we chose Go was as a recruiting thing, because it came, became really clear that people wanted to work at it and that we could recruit people to work at it. Whereas like if we wanted to rewrite in Java, <laughs> like lol, <laughs> no. <laughs> that's interesting. I think that's the first time I've heard that. Mm. I've, I've definitely heard of people rewriting and Go for its technical merits, but for its uh, HR recruiting merits, that's not one that I've heard yet before. That's pretty awesome. It's definitely the clincher. So I know you're still small, but I know you're probably either hiring here and there or you're testing the waters. What, how do you see the pool of developers for Go? And how do you even approach it? Are you, If you had an opening right now, would you be looking for somebody with experience in Go or somebody just really good and you would have the resources to train them in-house? In yeah. No, I don't care what languages people know, honestly. Um, I have huge faith in people's ability and capacity to learn. Actually, I wouldn't want to hire someone who I didn't think could learn whatever we needed. You know, I hate it when people do that sort of thing. Oh, I see you have experience in blah. No, you know, in fact, this is one of the reasons that I, I loved Parse. You know, when I started there as their first infrastructure person, I had never, I had never used Ruby, AWS, Mongo, Cassandra, you know, on down the list of technologies and, and they looked past that and they're just like, you'll mm, learn. I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I will. Couldn't agree more. Having a good foundation and kind of the passion and interest to learn is more important sometimes. Totally. Like we've always like Brian and I have talked about this. Like I like hiring people who for who they're going to be tomorrow versus who they are today. Because you know, some people like they're smart. Yeah. They'll be that same person tomorrow whereas the other guy your girl will be like, you know, ridiculously smarter a year from now and surpass the people you already have. So tell us about how you're uh, putting Go in the stack at Honeycomb. What kind of interesting challenges have you come up with there? Uh, boy, all of our interesting challenges at this stage are around driving user adoption. I mean, <laughs> you know, I just can't even claim otherwise it would be ridiculous. Um, one thing that I'll call out though, and, um, is is that uh, people keep asking me when I'm going to use containers, and I'm like, why? I'm running Go, you know? I often think that at Parse, we would have 
hopped on the, the container train if we had been using Ruby for sure. Um, but now I'm just kind of like, why? I mean, it isn't, it isn't robust. It is, you know, I, I, there are no compelling reasons. There, there are no big wins that I would get by using containers. It's very much the same at a honeycomb. It's, you know, you've got a tiny little statically linked binary. You just copy it around places. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess the motivation for containers could be orchestration too. Like if you have a large oh, cluster, no, and, yeah. If you have enough to justify schedulers, yes, but almost nobody does, and it's self-inflicted damage when they try. So I was talking with a group of people at KubeCon this year, which is the Kubernetes conference, and and I basically somebody was asking when should they scale to containers or orchestration platforms, and my my first pass at that was when you can't name all of your machines by host name, and like saying like Chicago Web One through Five doesn't count, but like if you couldn't reasonably name all of your machines, then then it's worth considering. If you've got three hosts, you're probably not gaining much. Yeah. So my one node Kubernetes cluster is overkill? <laughs> not for you. You have fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, every, every technology you, you adopt comes with overhead too, right? Like teams need to learn and understand and they need to maintain it. They need to know what the failure scenarios of those things are, how to debug it. So it's just one of those things that's added overhead if you don't have a team or infrastructure the size that gains more from it than it costs. So. Totally. It's another layer, layer of abstraction. And I like that policy about not naming your host. I, I haven't done that in like a decade. <laughs> but yeah, like orders of magnitude, you know, either. And it's, it's also a function of the complexity, like the number of host types that you have. I do like the way that we're going, but a lot of these things are not baked. I mean, you've, have you seen the best practices for Kubernetes? Oh, it, so, sorry, it doesn't exist. Like, it's like how to get data out, uh, maybe tail it out into an elastic search cluster and grab through it someday. It's just like shrug. Uh, nobody knows, you know, we aren't Google. Google's infrastructure for everybody else, the whole Giphy thing is well-meaning, but um, mostly driven by sort of academic type technologists who are my least favorite type of technologists. Uh, yeah, I think that with all of that stuff, it's an early technology, which means it's not fully flushed out yet, which means yeah. that if, if you're struggling and you can gain from it and it's something that you can build off of and save yourself problems and engineering time, then awesome. But if you're not willing to take the ride with the project and work through the kinks and, and build your own things to, to round it out and fill your complete use case, then it's probably not worth adopting. But it's, I think it's promising for a lot of oh, people for sure. you know, yeah. as it evolves. Yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff there. The bones are great. And it's, it's exciting to get to play with some of these toys. It's just that we, exactly what you said, we do have to remember that they are kind of toys for most of us. And if you don't have the, if you don't have the drive to go all in on it when times get hard, because they're going to get hard a lot, then I don't recommend. Yes, times always get hard a lot, especially when you're on the bleeding edge. There's craziness for sure. <laughs> Scott Mansfield is trolling us in the GoTime FM channel. He said, got to fill that container spot on your buzzword bingo card. <laughs> there are definitely <laughs> benefits to containers, especially in the development environment. There are certainly times where Doing things on a Mac is just nowhere near as easy as doing it in Linux. So I'm, I'm all over the development environment Linux thing. Um, but I agree, especially with Go, that there is less incentive to 
use a container in production. You know, if if you've got a Go binary on a server, you don't need to run 30 of them because one Go binary will operate just as well as 30 will, in fact, better. So it's not a scaling issue. It's not bin packing and filling your servers with processes. Go handles that nicely with GoMax procs. It's it's all done for you by the runtime. Well, I mean, you've get you get process isolation and stuff like that too, where you can control using you know C groups how much resources it can, can uh, you know it can consume namespaces. You can kind of isolate processes from each other if your your project has those sorts of needs. Yeah, absolutely. But you're adding complexity, so that's that's the trade off. Um, I don't know if you've seen Jesse Trot has this great blog post about where it's okay to experiment and add complexity for the because you, you know you don't want to take people's playfulness away from them we all do tech because we love it you know and clamping down on everything is just going to make people quit and go um so she has this great blog post i don't remember where it is but she has a heat map she she's like this is where this is your playground it's your developer environment you know and then it's developer tools for everyone this is where we introduce new things and where we like you know, get 80% of the obvious bugs out. Um, and, and it's like this whole, you know, progression down to the things that you are conservative with where you don't introduce things until, you know, they've been vetted and tested. And that that's databases. <laughs> databases and operating systems. There was a post I read, uh, and I, I wish I remember it now, but where it was basically saying, like, you know, you have a budget for new tech and bleeding edge and you get oh, one. yeah, yeah. You know, that like was if, Dan, if, Dan McKinley's. Yeah. Oh, was well, it? Yeah. Your innovation tokens, your innovation tokens. You get three innovation tokens as a startup. Yeah. And different things are like worth different amounts or something like that. But I basically, I remember it was like, you know, if, if you pick the, some hot new key value store, that's your one. Mm-hmm. Like everything else better be proven technologies and kind of, uh, yeah. And I, I think that's a smart move because if everything is new and bleeding edge, you're going to be, yeah. you're going to be fighting the system quite a bit. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on at uh, Honeycomb, like what all of you are building there and and kind of uh, how Go is proving itself. Yeah. So what we're building is it's um, it's a tool for debugging complex systems. It's kind of like you can think of GDB for systems, sort of, or you could think of it like like your IDE is for your code. You know, Um, a lot of people will throw around these terms like um, predictive analytics and like machine learning and come on you know you're not um not i want to see the corpus of data that you're trading on that you know we think that the best route is to uh, place a human at the center and give them nudges and help them it's really it's based a lot off of our experience uh using scuba at facebook you know when when we got acquired um they tried to push all kinds of tools on us at Facebook, and they mostly didn't work for us. Um, the one great exception was Scuba, and I know so many engineers at Facebook who I've heard them say the thing that I'm going to miss is Scuba, and I said it too. And when I left, I was like, um, "Surely something like this exists in the world, because you know, surely, surely the world of of like data and and monitoring has come a long way, and it hasn't. It really hasn't. Most people are still building." New versions of um, Nagios and Ardy, honestly. Now, for anybody who's not familiar, do you want to give like maybe like a brief explanation of what Scuba is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll tell you what Honeycomb is because it's, it's it's less Facebooky. You know, it's just we ex- we accept JSON, right? We accept JSON at the edge, right key, and an really arbitrarily wide set of key value pairs, and we aggregate 
in real time on all of those dimensions at once. So there's no indexes, right? You don't have to pick the three or four or five things that you want to be able to search on. You can search on any, any key as soon as you drop it in. Um, and if you want to stop sending it, there's no schemas, right? Um, you drop a key value pairs, um, we aggregate on them, and then you can just explore. You can just slice and dice on any of the dimensions, any combination, add one. You know, We pre-compute things like percentile buckets. Um, max and min are always there. Oh my God, having that raw original row, right? Getting to deal with events while you're debugging is like mind blowing. It's it's so impossible to go back to aggregates or roll ups or ticks or counters after that. On the back end, um, we had to write our own column store and go. <laughs> so you got to rewrite Cassandra? No, not not really. Uh, it's not even close actually. But it, they're they're like distant fifth cousins, sure. Um, but it's not a database. Like people give me shit all the time about writing a database after spending my entire life telling people not to write databases. We didn't, we did not write a database. There's no, like, there's hardly any query engine and there's, um, there's no transactions. We wrote a, an optimized file format. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying that out. Um, anyway, <laughs> and, it, and it uses like a fan out model, right? So we can partition your reads over a whole bunch of nodes. Um, so it's really fast. Like it's very important to us that this is interactive. You know that this is not a uh, a like thing that you sit and you construct a query and then walk away from your desk and like you know um, it's interactive because debugging is interactive. And when when systems get sufficiently complex, they outstrip your ability to predict what is going to break. You know, and I think a lot of us are hitting that threshold faster and sooner than ever before because there are so many trends that are pushing this this level of complexity, right? Everything from schedulers and containers to polyglot persistence to um, you know, distributed systems, uh, microservices, um, all these things are awesome, um, but they're a lot harder to debug than a LAMP stack was. Um, a lot more of the intelligence lives in the edges between the nodes, not just deep diving in the nodes themselves. In fact, you may not even have any servers, so now what do you do? You know, and it's really important just to stitch together everything from the edge, you know, with your mobile or IoT device. Storage is out there increasingly, too. Like, how do you know where this bit is supposed to be? Um, all the way through the code that you write yourself, you know, so it has to be native SDKs, um, like an APM. Our Golang SDK is amazing. All the way through to your storage engine. It's really important to us to be able to debug your database. Like, I don't know how people... DBA without this kind of thing? And the answer is that they don't. They just know how to look for slow queries. Um, but that's very often not actually the problem. Like, for instance, you know, people are like, oh, my database is getting slow. And they look for slow reads because, you know, reads that used to take one second are now taking, you know, 30 seconds. Well, okay, that, that may be the symptom that you're seeing, but often the problem is something like um, you, your write volume is getting higher and they're all contending for this one row or there's this one lock. And because those writes can't yield, they're just reaching a period of saturation. You can tune all your read queries all you want. It's not actually going to make a dent in the problem. Now with our tool, what you can just do is add up all of the time that each lock is being held by each raw query and ah, there it is. You know, It's just so easy to deviate once you can see these things. All right, I get down the weeds for databases. I wish Christine was here. She would have way more interesting Go stuff to say. But um, we're using Go for everything, everything from the UI um, all the way down to the guts. Um, and it's not been one of our top 10 problems, even close. So when you're putting together Honeycomb, the idea is that you aggregate 
aggregate maybe that you capture and collect all of the data from all of the different pieces in these these distributed systems that we're building today. Correct. And then use that to correlate and and discover problems or maybe predict problems before they come. That's the idea behind Honeycomb is that it's it's kind of the central store for all of the informational events that are going on that help you debug. And- yeah, it's so easy to just capture events from everywhere. Why are we? Why do we have a different thing that software engineers are supposed to look at? A different thing that DBAs look at? A different thing? Like all this does is like create these barriers of language and of tooling and of views of reality. You know, you don't have a common language to talk about. People spend so much, so much time talking about what their tool says versus what someone else's tool says. And like, you're not actually even talking about the problems here. It's the network. It's always the network. Blame those guys. It's always the network's fault. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Well, what if you could see the network too? Can you capture it in a form of JSON? Oh, cool. Then that might be able to tell you something. That's awesome. So you said that the UI is written in Go. You actually it shipped a web UI in, in Go and, yes. and nobody died? Nope. Nobody died. Wow. Now we don't have to check that much. <laughs> uh, Christine, my co-founder, is amazing at holding the line against bad UX, you know? There are so many features that we've actually implemented in the back end, and she won't let us put it up because she's like, has this been designed? Have we thought about this? No, I will not put a magic button there for you. You know? <laughs> you need that kind of a dictator in your life. Well, you do. You've got to have somebody to to gate all of those things. That's that's Eric and I have that going really well together. I have crazy ideas, and he always tells me no. Yeah. It works well. I mean, it's like it's fine to, to move fast, but when it comes to a UI, it is so hard to untangle good design and get back to a place that's sane, right? Yeah, and every time you change it, you end up upsetting some subset of your the mm-hmm. people using it. And people don't even have to use something. And if you take it away from them, they feel lost. Like, but what if I needed it? Yeah, I knew how to do that. I I was I know I'm going to get paged in the middle of the night someday and I'm going to need that button. Uh, so I think it is about time for our first sponsor break. So our first sponsor today is TopPal. Hey everyone, Adam Stukoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. Our friends at TopTal have been sponsoring our podcast for years, and now they're sponsoring GoTime as well. We think they're one of the best ways to hire developers and designers, as well as one of the best ways to freelance as a software developer or designer. Head to toptal.com go to learn more. Tell them you heard about them on GoTime. If you'd like a more personal introduction, email me, adam at changelog.com. And now back to the show. And we are back talking with Charity Majors from Honeycomb. Uh, so yeah, we were just talking about our the UI. So that's written in Go. Yes. Is this like Go for JS? Um, it, or just like the that. front? You just mean oh, like oh, the front the, end sorry, layer? Oh, sorry. The query. The query. Yes, the query. There, we are using JavaScript for the actual presentation layer. Okay. Oh. <laughs> oh. Sorry, kids. <laughs> Brian would have done a backflip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crushed. <laughs> deeply apologetic is this is it react is that yeah. what you're using on okay yeah you got to keep front-end engineers happy man yeah so that seems to be kind of the thing people are doing now with a lot of web apps uh in go anyway is basically just a json uh http interface from go and doing react and stuff on the front end yeah json is the language that we're all rallying around which is why your metric should be in it too uh-oh Somebody just messaged a shirt that says no. 
I don't get it. That's for you, Eric. That's for you. I'm still trying passwords one by one, trying to get back into that channel. It's never going to happen. I know. Give it up. You'll get it figured out as soon as we end the show. It's good. <laughs> That's the way it always works. You know, like you'll be like trying to think of something during a conversation and you'll remember the second the person leaves. Obviously. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so who's your target user for Honeycomb? What, are you, what, are you, what problem are you looking to solve? Yeah. So honestly, my heart is in empowering developers. Um, I feel like New Relic is really great at, at the first, like, helping developers get this first flash of, oh, wait, you mean I, I can know what's going on? You know? Um, but you hit it, you run into a wall. Like, everyone I've ever talked to is like, New Relic, ah, yeah, it was great. And then now I can't find something, you know? And I think we can do better than that. Um, ops people don't need to be sold on this you know um, they generally know what's wrong with our current set of tools um, I feel like we're ready for the second wave of DevOps though you know the first wave was all about dear ops people write better software and message received you know I think we spent the last five six years you know leveling up on writing tests you know really having infrastructure as code um, and now I think it's time to be just as hardline against you know all right developers Time to know how your stuff works. Time to know how to own your services from end to end. Time to know how to architect things, how to maintain things, and how to be uncall for things. And, you know, collectively, we will work to make uncall not miserable. Like, that, that's not supposed to be like a, a sentence. <laughs> you will go to jail and be uncalled for your stuff. But I do think that closing that loop of cause and effect between I wrote this and I, I have pain when it breaks, to some extent, um, is one of the most efficient things that we can do to write better services and better software. And also, like, operations is becoming a specialist gig, honestly. And DBAs are never going away, but they're increasingly going to be on the other side of an API. And if you care about, you know, being a good engineer, I know I'm making a lot of blanket statements here, but like at Parse, you know, we had all these mom and pop shops who built an app. Who's on call for their app? Well, they are, you know? And... That means that we need to have the right tools. We need to have tools that let us um, talk about what's happening now and what's happened recently across the organization and, and across the stack. Like what we're what we're doing is heavily recency focused um, now and recently, um, and we need to actually have the tools to ask answer new questions. Right, asking and answering new questions is kind of at the heart of understanding and debugging complex systems because. Like I said, like you can't have predicted what's going to break. So you can't just write monitoring checks for it, you know? Um, and I think this is a, an approach that feels very, it feels a little foreign to ops people because they're used to predicting how their system will break and building out monitoring tools for that system. And I think it feels very natural and, and homegrown for software engineers. So really this is like the personification of DevOps and an app. Absolutely. Interesting. So there's a lot of big Go news this week. Yeah, I heard something about a release or something, uh, you know. Yeah, this is a big week for releases, apparently. Oh. And we slacked yes. completely. Oh, my God, we dropped the ball on the Go release. We forgot to book our, our venue in the Tampa Go meetup for our uh, Go 1.8 release party. So we're actually going to have a Go release party that's like two weeks late because we're lame. Oops. Is that why you're well-rested today, uh, Charity? You, you need to get your <laughs> sleep for the, the release party? Uh, yes, actually, I will be there. I'm very much looking forward to it. Are you in the Bay Area? Yes, 
San Francisco. Okay. We actually wrote a blog post for you guys that I forgot to mention. If you look at blog.honeycomb.io, we wrote a post. Eben wrote it late last night, um, showing some Go internals using Honeycomb. Oh, how cool is that? Yeah. We're going to get on some retweeting action there. Hang on. Woo-hoo. Oh, nice. I know what I'm playing with. <laughs> <laughs> Event-driven instrumentation in Go is easy and fun. I'm quoting that. This is really cool. I don't know how you do it, Brian. He can sit here, he can quote people off and like drop stuff on Twitter like during the show. <laughs> he's he's multi-threaded. <laughs> That's right. I'm multi-thread. It's, it's Go. I just fire off a new Go routine. It's all good. <laughs> It it oh. comes from having three kids. So have you played with the beta for one eight? I haven't. Dude, I'm CEO. How much time do you think I get to spend with code? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the the hardest part too about uh it really is founding stuff and management too. Like, but but I want to code. Yeah. Please just please just leave my office so I can write some code. <laughs> what do you mean you want a one on one? Go away. <laughs> You just had one last week. God. <laughs> Didn't I hire you? Isn't that enough affirmation for you? Come on. <laughs> no, I don't mind the management and the affirmation. It's it's really the, uh, I always get, it's funny to think about this now. I used to really hate repeating myself. In theory, I still do. But that part of me has just grown numb from being hit with a sledgehammer every day. Repeating myself about, you know, the pitch and the you know, the product and, and there are some places where it's fun. Like here, it's like, I get excited because you guys are excited and you understand it, you know, um, telling VCs, uh, why they should give us money. And they're like, Hmm, you know, hmm. isn't there a new relic? Hmm. You know, and I'm just like, uh, who, where do I start? And not to, I'm not slamming new relic. New relic is awesome for what it is. Like they really bla- blazed a, a trail. Um, but explaining things to people who don't really care, I think is what sucks the life out. Yeah, and that's the best part about finding the VCs that that do care. Once yeah. you find them, you you really appreciate them for who they are. Yeah. I I love VCs for making things happen, but I think I'd probably be a terrible salesperson trying to convince them to give me money. Why should I give you money? Because it's going to be awesome. Yeah, I know, right? Because <laughs> I said so. You mean because it's going to have high impact and revolutionize something? Yeah, the buzzwords—they're terrible. Yeah, I know. Uh, this blog post is huge. You guys rock. Thanks for putting that together for our show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. Why am I losing the word that everybody uses now? Where disrupt? Oh, it's going to disrupt. disrupt. Yeah. Yes. Oh God, I just twitched involuntarily. Uh, it's going to disrupt cloud. Cloud <laughs> as you know it. Cloud. I love cloud. Cloud and serverless, my two favorite words. Cloud has just been hard for me to connect with because it's like, how is that any different? You know, like, what's the difference between, you know, putting something in a data center on servers? Like, oh, well, you know, it, it's, you know, distributed and, and, you know, backed up and fault tolerant. That's just good operation. <laughs> That's not anything new. <laughs> no, it's in the cloud. <laughs> my dad was over here a couple of days ago and he's like, what is the cloud? I said somebody else's computer. <laughs> oh, well, that makes more sense. Yeah. He, he totally got that. Yeah, that's just somebody else's computer. <laughs> I had a hard time with DevOps for so long. I was just angry because people would be like, I want a DevOps engineer. And I'm like, that's not a thing. That's like saying you want an agile engineer. It's not a thing. But um, 
I, I'm just like, yeah, I, I'll just get over it. All right, it doesn't mean anything anymore. Somebody told me of a new thing. It's like DevSecOps or something. They're trying to like merge oh, security God. stuff in. Stop. And Stop. <laughs> Stop. And you, you have to question because you're like, okay, some some amount of collaboration needs to be done because, you know, for a long time, development and operations were, it, you tossed it over a wall, right? Yeah. You, may, you might not have even met the people or ever talked to the people who are going to keep this thing alive in production, just kind of write the code and be like, okay, here's some documentation and go. And security can be the same thing too, right? Where there's not a lot of collaboration in the beginning, just a whole lot of documentation of what you did wrong after. But yeah, why we need buzzwords for some of these things is beyond me. Yeah. It's called a team. The team gets together. Know, they right? collaborate. We have a common goal <laughs> that we work towards. <laughs> and maybe that's one thing that, that the startup culture has brought, though, is the the much smaller team where engineers have to be more versed in things like deployment and security. You know, you, you don't get the luxury of specializing in just writing code. I remember, uh, you know, one of the things that frustrated me about being a corporate developer 20 years ago was you'd have these people that, that they, they were very good at writing code, but they didn't have the first clue about what happened after they checked that code in. They didn't even understand how the compilers work. They didn't understand anything about deployment or storage or networking. And that whole, you know, that mindset always frustrated me. And now, you know, we're at the complete opposite. You can't even have a real job anymore if you don't understand, you know, how many IOPS you can get out of an SSD when you're on a PCIe 4X card versus the 16X card. And you know, it's just, it's crazy. That's real full stack. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. Full stack isn't. Hey, full stack isn't JavaScript to backend. It's it's uh, I know, right? it's browser all the way down to hardware. Uh, hardware. Show me your hardware. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tell me about your full stack engineer. Full stack, I think, is just an excuse. Somebody kind of led to that. It's like full stack is kind of like an excuse to just underpay people. <laughs> you know, that's like your first programming job where they're like, you are the programmer, the system administrator, <laughs> and the IT support guy, and we're going to yeah. pay you, you know, McDonald's income for it <laughs> it always reminds me of like the all the dudes wandering around san francisco looking for that technical co-founder who will do everything <laughs> you know <laughs> they've got the marketing they've got the like design they've got the blah they just need somebody to just like do it all so how about you carlisi are you going to any release parties tonight absolutely the san diego go meetup is having a release party i kind of wish brian and i hadn't dropped the ball a release party would have been fun <laughs> hey, what if we're thinking about doing a release barbecue, though, just a little bit late? I don't think there's anything wrong with that, is there? Uh, it works for me. All right. Good. I love barbecue. So you guys want to talk about any projects or anything we've come across this week? Yeah, let's do it. So I came across one that was actually really interesting called PixTerm, which allows you to do images in just an ANSI terminal, which is really cool. And it's written in Go. Like the stuff people can do in a terminal is insane like i fight just to get my text to line up where it's supposed to mm -hmm. when i'm trying to do a text user interface and people are like oh yeah here i'm gonna do graphics in my terminal oh that's awesome yeah. just looking at their readme that's that's pretty killer yeah i can't even get vim to look good and they're they're making all these pretty pictures in terminal yeah, like e-man and e-man that's awesome very cool 
That is He-Man, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Might be showing my age a little bit, but I think that's He-Man. We didn't have TVs when I was a kid, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> they had TVs when you were a kid. We didn't have a TV when I was a kid. Oh, you didn't have one? No, my, well, for at least 10 years, my parents were completely against television, so I missed Same. a lot. Yeah. Missed, missed a lot of, of cultural references that I had to go back later and explore. But boy, did I binge on Knight Rider when it finally came time, you know, because that was an airwolf. Oh, my God. Me and TVs have been tight since I was little. I think I was two. So I actually have a dimple on one cheek. And that is because when I was two, I climbed up on the stand where the TV was to turn it on and pulled the TV over on my face. No broken bones, no torn muscles, a dimple. So you want to save some plastic surgery money, pull a TV on your face. That's awesome. It's funny because it's almost unbelievable. People are like, no. But yeah. But yeah, we've, we must have had a TV in my house most of my childhood, I, I'd have to guess. Even I had a TV growing up, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a TV. I, my parents would drag one out of the garage every four years for the Olympics. And that was it. Oh, oh wow. Wow, so, so you had one, it was just kind of like put up. Except for My dad wanted to be able to say that there was no TV in the house. Interesting. And there wasn't, it was in the garage. Is that more because they wanted, like, I, I'm interested to kind of learn this, is this more to learn? They were trying to secede from modern society completely. It was like electricity was a compromise with them. Hmm. That's a pretty important compromise though. We were homeschooled. No sugar. We grew all our own food. It's kind of like a religious compound, honestly. That's a whole other show right there. <laughs> That's a whole different story. Yeah. <laughs> it's squad goals. Uh, yeah. So um, the other thing I, I actually um, came across too, um, they're actually, one of them I think is a month or two old, and it's kind of uh, right up the alley of our discussion about Honeycomb, was um, there's on Backtrace's blog, if you want to know how a debugger actually works, like how GDB works internally, really cool two-part series, one where it kind of talks about how a debugger works and how it breaks down the dwarf uh, information inside the binary, and the other one kind of how it does the mapping to Go and be able to, to map to Go routines and stuff. So we'll link to those in the show notes. But those were really cool. Uh, I ran across the second part. I forgot I had read the first part. And then another cool thing that was released today, I saw Ron Evans of the Hybrid Group mention that a new GoBot version. Oh yeah, GoBot 1.2. Always got a shout out to the GoBot gang. They work so hard so that we can have really cool Go projects on our tiny little hardware. It makes me happy. Powers my barbecue. They're a trip. I love those guys. Have you done any GoBot stuff, Charity? Nope. What's GoBot? So GoBot is a series of libraries for interacting with hardware. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So they have stuff to work with, like the Parrot drones. They have stuff that just talks I2C. I think there's mm. SPI in there too. But yeah, it's ridiculously cool if you want to play with hardware and not have to write C++ or C. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's really awesome. I have a project that controls my barbecue grill so I can have uh, <laughs> metrics and, and control over the heat all from a web browser rather than, you know, having to brave the Florida heat to go outside and play with barbecue. Wow. It's a beautiful That's thing. Deeply impressive. Written in Go, powered by GoBot. <laughs> and if I had to do it in something else, it would have been a lot of work. It's a big love to the GoBot gang. <laughs> Yeah, to prove that point, I tried to start doing it in uh, C, and it's still sitting on the desk behind me. 
<laughs> That's because it's in C. It will be finished one day. I wanted to mention the changes to the Go code of conduct because, uh, well, I think these things are important. It affects everybody. Mainly, uh, did you guys see this? Yes, I did. Yeah, so I went and I saw the diff for the changes. And mainly, to me, my impression is, well, what they are doing is saying, we are not going to be enforcers anymore. And they explain why, and it all makes sense. So basically, they're going to be sort of like counselors or advisors if a conflict happens in one of the Go official spaces. So I think what that means to the community is that people who are running communities, meetups, or anything like that will have to be more aware and more uh, conscious that they will have to be enforcers. There is nobody else but us to enforce any type of follow-up or, or, or action that needs to be taken. And hopefully it will never happen, but just in case. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting change from the previous, you know, we're going to be the police force of the community versus, um, you know, now just trying to provide guidance for every space. It recognizes that all of the different ghost spaces already have some sort of mechanisms to keep their spaces friendly and you know the go team's uh, objective should be to provide guidance and support to them i like the change a lot i think that the change makes sense and it means i won't get yelled at by the go team anymore which is a good thing all right so let's give a shout out to our second sponsor for today which is compose production ready cloud hosted databases that's what compose is all about compose.com check them out Pick your flavor, Mongo, Elasticsearch, RethinkDB, Redis, Postgres, etcd, RabbitMQ, SiloDB, or MySQL. I talked to Greg Koberger, founder of README, about why they chose Compose. Take a listen. So we actually weren't using Compose at first. We uh, had our own Mongo database set up uh, on AWS. We were just going through a checklist of things that would just kill our company. You know, it's not to be overly dramatic, but there's a few things early on that can just destroy a company and there's no coming back from. And pretty much every single one of them was around data loss or whether it be stolen or just deleted. I don't do DevOps. Uh, I'm a programmer and I can, you know, navigate my way around the command line, but I did not believe that I had the skills to make sure that I wouldn't just delete the database by mistake or that my backups wouldn't at some point, you know, just stop working. You know, every single scenario that I saw, like, you know, waking up and, and seeing that something bad had just happened, they all involved the data. If we pushed a bad, you know, push bad code and it broke something, that can be fixed. But kind of data, either theft or loss, was the two things that I just uh, was petrified of. It took, you know, 30 seconds to get started with Compose. Uh, we went to the site, signed up, moved over within minutes. It was fast. The interface was great. We could browse stuff online. But kind of the biggest reason why we started using it was just scared that we were going to lose everything. All right. If you're ready to give Compose a try, head to compose.com slash changelog to learn more. And now back to the show. All right. And we are back. So we were going through kind of what's interesting and new in the Go world. Anybody have anything else, or do you guys want to go on to Free Software Friday? Um, graceful shutdowns in 1.8? Yes, this is big. Anyone tried them? Yeah, it's awesome. I've been running 1.8 oh. in production for, oh, two months now. 
Oh my God. Oh my God. We've, oh my God. I've spent so much time and energy on this time after time at Parse and at Honeycomb and it never really, really, really worked. <laughs> That's exciting. It's, yeah, it's something almost everybody has to write it from scratch if, if you run a yes. TV server. So, yeah. We used Crowley's for a while and then Natick wrote something at Facebook. Shout out to Natick. He wrote so many great libraries for Golang while we were at Facebook. Uh, faster to first speeds. And Christine was really excited about sort.slice. Bang, bang. What is that? I'm 1.8. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember what this. I don't is. know that one. Oh, this this is where you can pass in a function, a less function. Oh, that's cool. That's what it is. Yeah, some other cool things is um the the HTTP library can support taking a context now, so you can cancel um HTTP requests as part of a context. Um, one of the other cool things I was excited about was the um mutex contention profiling. So up until now, you couldn't. You couldn't actually see which go routines and things were contending for a particular mutex. And then there's like a whole series of other stuff. I'm trying to remember what all was in there, but those were some of the fun ones I saw. It's a big release. It really is. I'm excited about this one. Oh, Charity made it. It's, it must be time to end the show because Charity made yeah. it into the Slack. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So while we were on uh, talking about uh, Airwolf and um, Knight Rider, the Go team released uh, 1.8 officially. I, I'm really honored that they chose our uh, live podcast to do that. So thank you, Go team, for uh, honoring us in this way. So fire up your downloaders and go out to blog.golang.org and read the 1.8 release notes and install. I've already got it installed on all of my local machines in the last five minutes. The power of bash scripting. So that's big news. Go get some Go 1.8. Put it in production. Make yourself happy. Garbage collection pauses are big changes in Go1. I don't know if you guys have seen some of the uh, really awesome uh, pictures on Twitter of people who were trying uh, Canary 1.8 releases, and some of the uh, garbage collection changes are just so dramatic. It's awesome. I love how we can have uh, Go releases that make the language so much faster every time, and we don't really lose anything. This makes me happy. Yeah, that's what I always love is just, just need to recompile it. Context everywhere. Context in the database SQL package now. That's big. So we can have uh, timeouts and SQL calls. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what some of the other stuff is. But yeah, there's, um, we'll link in the show notes to the release notes that'll go through kind of uh, all the stuff. They usually highlight some of the bigger stuff and then they'll give kind of like the long form, you know, bugs fixed and things like that in the individual libraries. But yeah, if you haven't played with it, certainly do. And shame on you because you're supposed to help beta test this before it's released. <laughs> Francesc Compoy has a great uh, video. I think he did it at a, at a meetup. So it's the recording of his talk that he did. And he goes over all the new things in 1.8 and it's pretty awesome. I read a few things and I thought his was uh, a lot more clear. Yeah, and um, Corey Lanou uh, just linked in the GoTime FM channel. Usually for all of the releases, Dave Cheney puts together a slide deck of introducing the changes in the version, in this particular case, 1.8, so that people can uh, host their own release parties and use that. Uh, so huge shout out to Dave for doing that. He invests a ton of time in doing that stuff. It's too late now because by the time this episode airs, all the parties will have happened. But if you want to run one late, Except like ours. Brian and I, <laughs> you, can, you can use this slide deck. 
or if you just want to see what was part of it, that slide deck is available online too. Yeah, huge, huge props to Dave for putting that together. So anybody want to do free software Friday? I do, I do, I do. Was that too much? Nobody else seems convinced. I'll, I'll back off. Sorry. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> Go, Brian. <laughs> so my free software Friday shout out is to the Eclipse J project. If you haven't yet seen it, it's a really awesome web-powered uh, IDE with terminal. And, you know, all of that sounds kind of boring. You know, who wants to write their stuff in the cloud? But from my perspective, teaching Go, it allows me to use a single Docker container to give each of my students a fully operational Go web IDE and terminal that's uh, self-contained and won't damage my servers, but allows them to have complete uh, uh, Go environment with the source code for the class in it. So one one Docker container plus Eclipse J and everybody gets to write Go code without having to worry about uh, uh, installing things. So really love uh, Eclipse J today. Makes me happy. Thanks, Eclipse. Challenge accepted. Now I kind of want to find a vulnerability in Eclipse J. <laughs> Just because. <laughs> All right. You, you go for that. Uh, how about you, Carlicia? Well, I saw Brian's uh, shout out, and I remember that I wanted to give a shout out to VS Code Editor because I've been using it and I'm finding it really, really neat. It's got some kinks, but I think I, you know, it could become my main editor. It's so funny that you mentioned that because I've probably been spending half of my time in Visual Studio Code this last week or two. And the latest updates have been really sharp. It's the fastest GUI for editing that I've ever used. It's really sharp. It's really sharp, yes. And it's fast. I don't hate it. Yeah, it's got a Vim plugin. I'm sure it's got Emacs plugin as well. And um, very, very neat. It's very, very neat to be able to uh, just navigate through the definitions for each method and so easily. I mean, you can do that with other editors as well, but it's it's just really cool. Yeah, their support is solid. I, I definitely think that they've done a great job. And I know it's uh, Lou Coban that's driven most of the Go integration, but you know the whole Microsoft team has done a great job on that editor. I like it a lot. How about you, uh, Charity? What, what's your editor of choice? Uh, I'm Vim. I use Vim for life. Yeah, same. Brian, Brian, I, I converted him, but now he seems to be converting away. Mm. I still, I'm still half him. That's what happens with this fickle. You know, if you can convert them one way, they can probably be converted another way. <laughs> well, Brian also changes operating systems about once a week, too. Wow, that's a whole new level. God, if you could see my desk. I have four computers here. Two Linux, one Windows, and one Mac. And it's, it's beyond ridiculous. But, you know, when you teach, you got to be able to teach all the people, not just the ones that love the same operating system you do. Well played. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> uh, so we may be catching you uh, off guard, Charity. But, yeah, so every show we tend to, to close the show out just kind of recognizing uh, projects and maintainers that mm -hmm. make things that make our lives easier. It does not have to be written in Go. So if there's a person or project or somebody that you want to give a shout out to. For sure. I have one for me and for Christine. For me, it's uh, Natick Shaw from Facebook. He's amazing. His dependency injection library made Go possible for our rewrite. Um, he's amazing. He just He's one of the best engineers I've ever worked with. Um, and he's one of those rare senior engineers who gives code reviews 
that are so annoying that lift up everyone around him, just force <laughs> them to be better. <laughs> um, yeah, anything that he's written, he's a giant library of stuff over on the Facebook Go. Um, it's all Natick, and his dependency injection stuff is just fabulous. Christine also wanted to mention Matt Silverlock for the content around Go to drive web applications, um, to have a common voice between various frameworks like the Goji, uh, Gorilla, etc. Nice. I'm trying to remember what library it was that came out of Facebook Go that we were using all the time. I know there was Grace, which was for the graceful restarting of services. I know we used that, but there was, I feel like there was another library we used to use. There was, a, I swear it was from Parse, though. It wasn't from Facebook. Oh, yeah. But all of the Parse stuff was Facebook Go. Oh. What did we use? I don't know. There was something. Something that we used. I, I just don't remember what it was. And I don't have that source code anymore because, you know, once you leave, you can't keep that stuff. <sighs> At least you're not supposed to keep that stuff. And if you did keep that stuff, you wouldn't admit to it. No, I would be violating my uh, termination agreement. That would be bad. <laughs> so uh, my free software Friday for today is actually, uh, it's, it's by a company called Jetstack. It's called Kube Lego. Which, um, if you're familiar with Kubernetes, there's the concept of what they call an ingress controller, which basically controls outbound traffic that's outside of the cluster inward. Um, and basically, it, it creates a hook where it can automatically get TLS certifications through uh, Let's Encrypt for you. So you basically just start up your service and tell it that it's going to be exposed and that, yes, please give me a TLS certificate. And it does all the magic. I love the yes, please give me a TLS certificate. You know, the, the days of buying certificates are just so old. <laughs> and that's kind of the beauty of it, right? There's just the, the spec that you submit to Kubernetes just has an annotation on there that says Acme TLS true. And it, that's awesome. It sees it and it goes out and fetches you a certificate. But surely the profit motive is the best way to manage security. What's that? <laughs> profit? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, how can you possibly be secure without a $30,000 vendor product? I mean, thank you. It's just, there's just no way. <laughs> All right. Did anybody else have any shout outs before we close out the show? Going once, going twice, and done. <laughs> everybody, thanks for being on the show, everybody. Especially a huge thank you to Charity for coming on. And uh, we'll have to try and get Christine on to another yeah. time or, or add more capacity for people on the show. Add more microphones. Yeah, stack up more Mac minis in Adam's office. We got to do a show entirely on Adam's uh, setup and his little Mac minis. And I think it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So to explain what the limitation is, the way this is ac actually works is all of us are on Skype. And we are all called by different Skype accounts that are all running on separate Mac minis that are like all mixed together in a mixing board that Adam Sokoviak of ChangeLock does. So he's hiding behind the curtains until we say goodbye. And then he, <laughs> he joins. Nothing to see here. Move along. <laughs> so huge thank you to all of our listeners, uh, especially other people listening live right now. Huge shout out to our sponsors for today's episode, Top Cal and Compose. Without them, we wouldn't have a show. Um, definitely share the show with fellow Go programmers. Uh, we are gotime.fm online, at gotime.fm on Twitter, and github.com slash gotime.fm slash ping. If you want to be on the show, have suggestions for guests or questions towards guests that we've had, 
And with that, bye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for coming on, Charity. We really appreciate it. Totally. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, that wraps up this episode of Go Time. Special thanks to our sponsors, TopTal and Compose. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. This episode was edited by Jonathan Youngblood, and the theme music for Go Time is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.